Now, again, we are not going to be able to do justice uh, to this. Um, so I'm, I'm probably going to go for about 15 minutes, and wherever I am, I'm going to stop and I'll go on to the relationship of the Lord's Supper and baptism and then talk a little bit about the church. Uh, but interestingly, there are fewer references to the Lord's Supper uh, than there are to baptism in, in the New Testament. It, it's something uh, absolutely central to our life together. Those first references are just to tell you it has different names uh, from different ways the Scripture talks about. So the Lord's Supper is from the Lord's Supper in Greek, 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, Holy Communion, if you're from that background, comes from 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Uh, the Eucharist, which some people call from Luke 22, that's just a giving thanks. The Lord's Table from 1 Corinthians 10. So these are always the New Testament talks about it. Here's a, here's a bit of trivia. Why is the Catholic version of the Eucharist called the Mass? Now this is real trivia. It's because at the end of the Mass, the priest would say, Ite Missa Est. Go. It's finished. Mass. Anyhow, you can store that one up. Okay. Right. Uh, now, it's known from uh, a number of references, and it plainly is related to the Last Supper, which was a Passover meal, a significant meal. Remember, Jesus said, I've desired to eat this meal with you. You know, uh, this really mattered to Jesus. Uh, and that is something uh, to, to think about. Uh, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare the Passover? Uh, and Jesus had actually prepared uh, a, 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 a place uh, for them and, and, and planned it. You know, he said, my time is at hand. You know, so it's a, a significant meal uh, for Jesus. It happens in a context of betrayal and it happens on the night before he died. And as uh, part of a, a, a Passover meal, uh, the bit of the Lord's, the, the Last Supper that we get in the Gospel accounts is part of this much larger meal that some of you may have experienced if you've been to a, a Jewish Passover, uh, which is interesting because he isolated certain elements of that meal uh, to accompany what he said. Uh, anyhow, this is... Anyhow, um, then there are different references. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, and and we'll, 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 let's think about that. Uh, this will deserve uh, m much more uh, time. Uh, okay. So the context of the passage is uh, divisions. Uh, uh, divisions uh, probably expressed along sociological lines. Uh, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognised. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Right? So now that's pretty serious to despise the church of God, which uh, Acts tells us uh, he bought with the blood of his own. 
And when you're persecuting the church, remember, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Right? So to despise the church of God serious and to humiliate those who have nothing, the divisions seem to be between the rich and the poor, the rich rivalry, the rich would have their meal, they'd probably be in the inner room and the poor may well have arrived later, especially if they were slaves having done their job and they get nothing. They, they'd be left on the outside, they get nothing. When presumably it was the Lord's Supper. So I tell you, a bit of a, a, ours is a much more refined context for the supper. So again, uh, context for a larger meal. And, and that behaviour is is very distressing uh, uh, for the Apostle Paul. And notice what his antidote is. Okay, his antidote is to explain the significance of the supper by going back uh, to its origin, uh, because as he understands it, uh, their behaviour is indicating that they actually don't understand. Uh, what the Lord's Supper is about. Good. So, uh, so it was, uh, they're unaware of the real significance of the Supper and that's revealed in their behaviour. So his response is an exposition of uh, the Lord's Supper by reflection on its institution and uh, the, he stresses its origin is with Jesus. I received from the Lord what I also uh, passed on to you. Uh, now, again, that's important language. It's saying it comes from Jesus himself and it's something, in a sense, which is uh, to be passed on. And he reminds them uh, of the context of its institution, uh, who on the night uh, before he died. And that should add seriousness and significance to what Jesus is teaching us. So think what you would think of. Think what you would make provision of. You know, these are last words, in a sense, to his people, and not just to the people who are there. The command to repeat it tells you he's thinking of others, the generations yet to come who will believe in him uh, through uh, their ministry. And it's a Passover meal. The context is this Passover meal. Now, what's the Passover meal? A Passover meal is a meal with a narrative of salvation which remembers a deliverance achieved and which includes the participants in that meal by their faithful remembering in that deliverance and its outcome. Includes them in the people of God. And they have to share in it. They can't uh, exclude themselves of it. Now, now that's very important because, you see, what do we get in the Lord's Supper? Uh, we actually get a new meal with a new narrative of salvation which remembers deliverance achieved and which includes the participants through faithful remembering within that deliverance. So, so it's actually very uh, significant. So, so what's uh, the new meal? Well, it's radically simplified uh, with no geographical location stipulated. So remember the Passover, you had to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate it, but now we have a meal which immediately can be celebrated all around the Roman world because he's taking staples, just bread and wine. So it's a radically simplified meal which is universalizable, right? Uh, completely able to be to, to be shared uh, right around the Roman world without any location 
And he gives a new narrative. And the content of the narrative is Jesus' death as inaugurating the new covenant. This is my body, which is for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, right? So body and blood, two elements of the sacrifice. Bits of the body get burnt, the blood gets sprinkled on the altar, remember? So Jesus is talking about his death as a sacrifice uh, and and uh, that allusion to sacrifice is many layers. So first of all, it's realistic language and, and again, if you come from a Catholic background, there's a whole big story here. But this is my body, right? It's realistic language, uh, but unless you have a certain frame of mind, it is definitely not confusing language. I can't imagine that any one of those apostles there, after Jesus had broken the bread and said, this is my body, thinks, Jesus just grown a new finger. Look at that. Right? That's just gross, isn't it? You know, he's, he's, he, plainly, this is a sign of my body, right? Plainly. So it's not confusing language. He's, he's making it a sign, and he's making the cup a sign uh, of his blood. But the great power of uh, the supper is it's personally applied. Drink from it, all of you. Right? You have to respond. Right? Take and eat. Right? This is my body, which is for you. You can't be passive or neutral in the supper. You have to respond. You've got to work out whether you actually believe him or not and whether you will respond. Uh, to what he's done. And it in includes, by that personal application, it includes. So the aspect that's focused on is Jesus' death as a sacrifice. And as I say, that is many-layered. So there's the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement developed in Hebrews, that sacrifice that takes away the sins of God's people. There is uh, the redemptive sacrifice of the Passover, that sacrifice that spares from death and makes us a new people. There's the sacrifice for sin of Isaiah 53, who makes himself an offering for sin. right? And then, of course, there's the covenant inaugurating sacrifice, Exodus 24, where they sprinkle the blood. This is the blood of the covenant. Now, all that is there. So this is, there's, a, there's a lot of Old Testament just coming to bear on Jesus' words to help us understand what Jesus' death achieves for us as that sacrifice that takes away sin and brings in the new covenant. And that understanding highlights the benefits that flow to us from Jesus' death, through faith in Jesus' death, shown in our participation. See, those uh, benefits are, of course, forgiveness of sin, inclusion in the new covenant uh, community, so it's a kind of covenant renewal activity focusing on Jesus and his death. Okay? Sins atoned for, welcomed at God's table, part of God's family, and of course hope, because it always looks forward. There's more. And notice Jesus says, Do this in remembrance of me. Uh, and Wallace says, A good rule of thumb is that when an attitude is commanded, this force is aggressive, but when an action is commanded, the force of the present imperative will usually be what he calls iterative. That is, this is something you keep on doing, 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 doing. Do this in remembrance of me. Keep 
on doing this. And that's the reason to remember me. Now, that's not causing God to remember Jesus. It's actually making us remember Jesus as the sacrifice for sin, the one through whom we have forgiveness, the one through whom we're welcomed at his table, the one through whom we are now the new covenant people of God. So it looks for that continuing emphasis on his death. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, isn't that... uh, I mean, that is just so wonderful. What you're actually doing when you're coming to share in the supper is you are saying, Jesus, the crucified, saves. Jesus, the crucified, has been made Lord of all. So it's not just an internally focused meal. It's actually also an outwardly focused proclamation. And you're proclaiming it to your brothers and sisters who are sitting with you by eating and drinking as often, right? You proclaim the Lord's death. Oh, and you proclaim it to all who come. That What gives us the hope of eternal life? What gives us confidence in the presence of God is Jesus and his death. And, and, and the extraordinary thing is by saying, do this in remembrance of me, uh, Jesus included us. He was thinking of us. So what is it to remember Jesus? It, it's the Deuteronomy 16 kind of remembrance. We'll, we'll do this when we get to Deuteronomy 16. But he says to people who were not there when they left Egypt, that by sharing the Passover, you remember the day you left Egypt. Sharing in it with faith includes you in the rescued people of God. When you take from Jesus' hand, because he is the one who's speaking to you, that bread in the cup, he is including you in the people for whom he's about to die. He's including you in those who benefit from his sacrifice. It's not the pastor, it's Jesus, because he's the one who says, keep on doing this. He is the one who holds out the bread and the wine to you, right, with his word of promise. And that's, of course, what's key to our celebration of the supper. The word of promise. Uh, now, what is it? Uh, lots more could be said. Uh, what What is it to partake unworthily? Uh, in the Old Testament, it's actually unworthy partaking of uh, the Passover, and that's to partake of it when you're unclean, and to partake of it in a way which is not according to what God has commanded. You know, so you you don't eat all the meal, or you don't do this. Uh, and that uh, brings judgment on them, right? Uh, uh, to, um, wor- to, to, to partake worthily, you actually have to, in a sense, know what you're doing and believe it. So worthy partaking is repentance and faith in the gospel. See, they were uh, unworthily partaking because, one, they thought they were just there to get a feed, right? They're stuffing themselves, Right? But secondly, they are unworthily partaking because they did not understand the consequences of Jesus' death. So they weren't focused on Jesus' death and what flowed from it. So they thought they could ignore brothers. They thought that their distinctions of wealth still mattered when they didn't matter at all. Right? Because this meal humbles us and tells us we all relate to God on the same basis. The people with whom we eat, doesn't matter whether they're poorer than us or anything, they are our brothers and sisters, people for whom Jesus died, people whom we must treat with respect and be in good relationship with. So 
to, to, to partake worthily is to discern the body and blood. That is, you actually have to discern that what you're doing is remembering Jesus' death in the way he's prescribed. Right? That's to partake worthily. And it's also to understand the consequences of what you're doing for your relationship with each other, which is why we say you have to be in love and charity with your neighbour. You can't despise them. Lots more that could be said there. But let's just move on to, um, as I said, to, to the relationship between uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper because that's pretty important. Um, they're plainly related because it's the same gospel that is preached in both, in a sense, with the same promises. Forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus. And it's actually for the same group of people, believers, believers in Jesus, those who confess him as Lord. So fit partaking is repentance and faith. Uh, and both, in a sense, speak of the same blessings. Right? Uh, they, they speak of forgiveness. They speak of adoption. You know, one marks entrance into the family in union with Christ. The other speaks of sharing in the family meal through union with Christ, a sharing that actually strengthens that union, for that's part of what it is to be sustained by the body and blood of Christ. It's, it's actually uh, a union that relates to what Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, how we become one flesh. We actually share in his death and rising. We share in the benefits of his death. So adoption, union with Christ. Uh, one assures us that we are washed. The other reminds us of the basis of this cleansing, forgiveness of sins through the death of Jesus. One is admission. So while there's the same gospel and the same people, there are differences. One is admission into the covenant people. The other, in a sense, is the renewal of that covenant just as the Passover, in a sense, was the renewal of that covenant and the inclusion of the people. And so there is a, a distinction that helps us see the different roles of each. Baptism is a beginning thing. The Lord's Supper is continuing. Baptism is once. The Lord's Supper is repeated. One, in a sense, speaks of birth. The other speaks of continuing life and growth. Right? One speaks of conversion. The other speaks of maturing uh, in faith in Jesus. And uh, you do need maturity. Uh, so baptism is necessary in a sense, but not sufficient. You actually need to understand what you're doing. That's why we've always traditionally tested people to see, do they understand what they're doing? Do they discern the body? Do they know this is about remembering Jesus in his death and rising? And do they understand the consequences of that? Uh, for their relationship to God and relationship with each other. And I've got a little quote there just to show you that the session was not eccentric. Uh, the Didache is uh, late, uh, either late first century, early second century, and you wouldn't want to, and it's not there because it's prescriptive, you wouldn't want to do or believe everything the Didache says, but it does give you a sense of what Christians have thought from the beginning. <laughs> And that none eat or drink of the, your Eucharist except those who have been baptised in the Lord's name. And that's actually always been the position of the church because scripturally it's just that the scriptures, the New Testament really does not conceive of an unbaptised believer. It's as straightforward as that, right? Now, as I say, we're in an anomalous and confused age 
And so our discussion was urging you to actually just, in a sense, uh, conform your experience to the pattern of the New Testament that says believers are baptised and the Lord's Supper is for believers. That's just a, they're the boundaries, in a sense, around the community of faith, faith in Jesus. Questions before I talk about the session or will I talk about session and then take questions? I'll talk about session. Okay, and we are a visible fellowship with visible boundaries. Being a Christian is not just something that happens in your head, okay? These are visible activities that define a visible community. We're not disembodied. We are always embodied. And, and at the heart, in a sense, of the requirement of baptism is a reminder that you don't belong and participate in the life of God's people on your own terms. You don't belong to Jesus and are a follower of his on your own terms, always on the Lord's terms. So, so that's the first thing. Secondly, we are a community that have leadership, uh, a fellowship to which God has given leadership, and the responsibility of the leadership is to make sure the life and relationships of the congregation are regulated according to the word of the Lord Jesus because we're his people mentored there by example and instruction. And so that's what, in a sense, we're trying to do. And sometimes uh, leadership conforms the life of God's people to uh, the word and example, uh, the word of the Lord Jesus, by exercising judgment, Matthew 18. So at the heart of the discipline exercised by the Christian congregation is suspension from the Lord's Supper. That's the ultimate sanction. Now, here's the issue. If you admit yourself on your own terms to the Supper, how could session ever suspend you from the supper? Now, hopefully the terms we say are the scriptural terms. Belief in Jesus shown in baptism. Now, I think they are. But if you say, no, no, we come to the supper on our own terms, how will you ever have or be open to the benefit of discipline? And actually, discipline is for the believer's good. It's actually saying... You know, you're not living Jesus' way. Do you not know that those who do X, Y, Z will not inherit the kingdom of God? We don't want you to be deceived about your state. So you can't come to the Lord's Supper. You see, it, it, discipline is saying, you know, if you're not living with Jesus as Lord, don't fool yourself that you're trusting him as Lord. Uh, if admitted on a scriptural basis, explicit confession of the Lordship of Jesus in baptism then there's also a common basis for suspension. If you're not living with Jesus as Lord by in, in terms of repudiating his lordship by your actions, then you have no place at the table of the Lord. But if you admit yourself on your own terms, you and the congregation will miss that benefit. Claiming to be able to participate without baptism is actually undermining Christian discipline, which is actually important for congregational health and the reclamation of the individual. So that's some of the thinking that was going on in session. So not only do we think it's biblical to make the link between baptism and the Lord's Supper, we actually think it is helpful to our ongoing life together.